to be able to tell these things is an honor because these people put their life on the line for the advancement of humankind and so forth. And that's, it's a bit of a responsibility to undertake the storytelling aspect, however small that might be, right? Hey everybody, I'm your host Stephen Palmer and this is Hodinkee Radio. This week we're talking all things Hodinkee Magazine since the new one, Volume 8, drops today. And I've got our Senior Vice President of Content, Mr. Nick Marino, the mastermind behind the new magazine with me today. I can see he's already laughing, but uh, wanted to bring Nick in to tell us all about the new mag. How you doing, Nick? Hey, glad to be here. Thanks, Stephen. Of course. Tell us about the new magazine, man. We were we were seven volumes in and volume eight is uh, it's a new thing. It's a it's a pretty big departure and an exciting departure from what I think people kind of know and expect from uh, the Hodinkee magazine. Yeah, well, you know, the magazine has always been a physical emblem of Hodinkee writ large. And as Hodinkee is evolving, the mag is evolving with it. Close readers will have noticed some changes in the look and feel of the site. More color, hopefully a little more energy, a stronger sense of of play in our visuals, and that we wanted to bring all of that to the magazine. At the same time, we wanted to keep continuity with all of the issues that came before and, and respect our heritage. And so what you'll find is a magazine that has been completely redesigned cover to cover all the way down to the paper stock, but that is the exact same trim size as every other issue, which means it, it'll fit nicely on a bookshelf next to the previous issues. And it maintains even the same visual language on the cover with that sort of instantly recognizable rectangular window only this cover looks a little different from previous covers. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit different. And I, I think it's interesting to me because there's, you know, before we covered topics outside of watches in the magazine, that was really our place to cover things adjacent to the world of watches. But I think in the new magazine, and correct me if you disagree here, but I think we, we're still doing that, but we're doing it in a way where everything is kind of like bounced off the idea of watches. You know, we're covering product, we're covering history, we're covering design, we're covering art, we're covering automotive, we're covering all these things, but we're covering them all kind of through the lens of or bounced off the wall of watches. I think in a lot of ways, this is the watchiest magazine we've ever done. We've actually narrowed the focus to be just about watches and and time. And yet, on the other hand, we've totally widened the focus because now through the lens of watches, we're able to talk about fashion. We're able to talk about sports. We're able to talk about collecting and investing. We're able to talk about all these sort of big issues through the lens of watches and time. You know, the, the, the physical object, that's part of the story. But to me, it's, it's actually not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. And the most interesting pieces that you'll find in this magazine are the ones that use the watch to go somewhere deeper. Yeah, I, I totally agree. What One of the other things you've done is, is you've made the magazine more diverse. And I don't just mean that in a sort of like representation way, although that is part of it. But it's also just like it's a mix of familiar voices and new voices, a mix of, you know, products that people are probably familiar with and that are like household names in, in Hodinkee land 
and some really weird esoteric stuff. And and I wonder if you can speak to kind of like that motivation and that idea. Yeah, we're really trying to make the world of watches better for everyone. And we're trying to make it bigger. You know, we want to sort of throw the doors open to everyone. And everyone really means everyone. That means everyone at every price point, at every level of interest. That means men and women. That means everybody who might have an interest in this category. And, and so, you, you know, you'll see, for example, there's a photo of Lil Wayne next to my editor's letter. And I think the stereotype of rappers is that they all wear these kind of, you know, iced out, heavy duty, you know, kind of $100,000 watches. And in fact, what Lil Wayne's wearing is like $120 G-Shock. I love that because it completely flips the stereotype on a tent. Anytime we can make people think about what's on their wrist a little differently, we're doing something right. That's the goal of this magazine, to help you think about watches and time itself in a whole new way. Yeah, I think that's great. And we've got three stories here that give a, a pretty nice range of what to expect. We've got a conversation with James Stacy about his reference points about the Rolex Explorer 2. We've got a chat with Cole Pennington about his story that kind of adds a new chapter or maybe even rewrites the history of watches and spaceflight. And then we've got a chat with Genevieve Walker, a new voice for the Hodinkee audience, and her story about gadget watches and the idea of watches as technology, which I personally found really fascinating and made me think about the subject in a totally new way. And this isn't everything. Uh, obviously, the magazine contains everything from, you know, ancient Aztec timekeepers made of stone all the way up to conversations with NFL superstars. So uh, it's a pretty broad range in this magazine. So, Nick, thanks for giving us some insight here. We'll have to have you back on the show again sometime very, very soon. But we'll uh, we'll get into these three conversations. So without further ado, let's do this. And up first, we've got my conversation with James Stacy about reference points, Rolex Explorer 2. Hey, man, how's it going? Yeah, really well. Yourself? Things are good. Things are good. I'm excited to talk magazine with you, man. I know uh, the story we're going to talk about is one you've, you've had kind of in the back of your mind for quite a while, right? Yeah, it's a big one. It's a it's a watch I really like, and it was a you know a treat to a treat to get a swing at the feature for the for the mag, and I think the layout and everything people find pretty surprising, but I think it ties in nicely with the watch. Yeah, I, I agree. So uh, this is Reference Points Rolex Explorer Two, which mm -hmm. I don't know if I can think of a more James Stacy story than uh, than this one. Yeah, it would be easily my my most favorite, like genuinely modern Rolex, especially in terms of a five digit timeline. I think there's some pretty sweet stuff from way back and there's some pretty really sweet stuff from the last 10 years. But you know, yeah, I'm deeply an Explorer 2 uh, fan. Yeah, I, I know uh, the the reference you wear regularly, the, the Polar has kind of become the James Stacy. It's become kind of synonymous mm -hmm. with you. But I'm wondering, do you remember the first time you ever saw an Explorer 2? Like the the your first encounter? Yeah, and I've actually gone back because I wanted to do like an origin story and actually find the person and talk to them for uh, either a story or a podcast or something like that. But a long time ago, and I've never been able to find the video again, but a long time ago, I, I watched a YouTube video of a guy. And I want to say he was in an E46 M3, but it was about driving various mountain roads in the Alps. The funny thing is, is that because the car in question was a right-hand drive car and, and this person was a left-handed person, so the watch was on the wrong wrist to even be seen from the camera. 
And all I remember noticing was it was a, a watch of some sort with a white dial on a gray NATO. And then at some point in the video, and, and some of this I'm conflating, we're talking like years and years and years ago that I saw this. I still want to say that this was a Steve Sutcliffe video, which means it would be an Evo video, which means I should have been able to find it by now, but I haven't. But at some point in the video, they switched to a, a left-hand drive car and you get a better view of the watch. And it was a, a 16.570, an earlier one than my own, but a, a Polar 16.570 on a gray NATO. And I saw it just like, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm in love. Like It's a watch you can see from 30 feet away. That's one of my favorite things about a watch is when you kind of know what it is from all the way across so two restaurant tables over. You know, those, those 40 millimeter five digit Rolexes look really good on a larger wrist, one even larger than mine. I mean, but yeah, it was a, a great looking watch and it always stuck out. And then, you know, the other side that, that was um, more pertinent to the story is this watch is also referenced in one of my favorite, you know, nonfiction books, uh, No Shortcuts to the Top by the American alpinist Ed Viesters. And it was the watch that Rolex gave him to be part of their testimony program as a alpinist while he was on the process of doing all 14 of the world's 8,000 meter peaks without supplemental oxygen. I believe he was something like the fifth person ever to do that, the, the first American to do it. I mean, just this guy's still alive, still climbing. He's, he's incredible. His books are great, but he references a white Rolex. And I later bought the ad from the magazine with him standing at the top of a mountain and the white 16570. There is nothing that makes me want a watch more than those old school Rolex ads. Absolutely. Like I have probably four or five ads for my vintage mm-hmm. Explorer, my Explorer 1, and like they are so dreamy and so aspirational and they just like they just cut right through me. I see them and I'm just like damn, I want to be that cool. And and the fun thing is, is if you go back far enough, I think they were more fun. The if you were doing this tomorrow, you'd wear this. That series is classic, right? Yeah. But if you go forward a bit and you see this a lot in the Explorer 2 stuff, because the Explorer 2 is a weird watch. It, it almost like it had a really kind of um, esoteric reason that they gave it for being born. This watch for caving, spelunking. And so they attached this uh, French scientist, Jean-Francois Pernet, and, and, and his work around volcanoes. And so not only did you have the kind of charm of the concept of those, if you did this, you would wear one of these, but now you had this like hyper-specific. And then, you know, a few years later, Ed Viester is sitting on the top of Manislau or, or Everest or something like that and saying, you know, this not just for the caves, we're on the top of mountains as well, not just under them. It's kind of such a strange watch, kind of a left of center watch. It kind of always has been for the brand because it's not a sub, it's not a GMT master. It doesn't have this like very defined diving, racing, flying sort of thing where they're like, or caving. And you're like, well, what's caving? Is this something people do? How many academic spelunkers exist in the world? 20? 50, 100? 500? I don't know. Right. And it's also hard because like a picture of somebody on a mountaintop like looks awesome. Mm -hmm. And like everybody understands the idea of climbing Everest, right? Like that's an easy thing to market. How do you get a picture of somebody cave diving like you don't, you know, and like this is such a like esoteric, strange thing. It's Mm -hmm. also a hard thing to photograph. Yep. Part of the point is that it's all in darkness. Like part of Mm -hmm. the reason the watch exists and the reason it has this, you know, bright orange 24 hour hand is because down in a cave, like there is no sun sunrise and sunset. Like, yeah, you have no cycle. it's, It's an inherently difficult thing to communicate about. And I think, you know, in your story, you do a really good job of kind of walking through the like weirdness of how this watch was born, mm-hmm. but then how Rolex kind of like changed course a little bit and like adapted it and kind of figured out how to position it in a different way, which I mean, one of my favorite Rolexes of all time is is the original Milgauss, oh, yeah. mostly just because it is so weird. And over the years, Rolex has kind of refined it and kind of like 
taken a lot of the weirdness out. Yeah, made it closer to the brand. Exactly. And and I think the Explorer 2 has come closer to the brand, but it's... They did the same, for sure. It's always retained a little bit of that weirdness, which I think is is really a huge part of its charm. Yeah, I, I would say that the Milgoss is now a somewhat weird date just in many ways, or an OP or however you want to view it. But like, there's not really a world. I guess you could say that the Explorer Two is a is a weird GMT master. Yeah. I guess if you wanted, right? They've they've True. commonly shared the same or very similar movements. They have a similar travel feature set. Yeah. But I think that the way that they started is so different. The GMT master started as this very like defined, easily understood tool for pilots that even carried the color of a specific pilot's you know outfit. And then on the other side, the 1655 comes out in 1971. So we're no longer talking mid-century Rolex. This is this is a modern Rolex, quote unquote, maybe the start of, of Rolex as we really know them today, especially in a manner where they're not simply playing, you know, the sort of like the Beatles, the same four chords in a different way, the sub, the GMT master, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're trying a different song. They're going a different route. And, and the 70s were a special time for all sorts of things, pop culture, media, media theory, uh, you know, is prevalent in this, in what this decade meant in terms of leaving post-war era and, and such behind and starting on something new. And for the 1655s, not only did you not have, you know, it doesn't even have Mercedes hands. It doesn't have normal 12-hour markers. It has these, uh, it has 24 five-minute markers, which is super strange. And of course, a few years later, they would bring out the 16550, which kind of established what that watch would look like for the next I mean, up until today, really, in many ways. And the longest standing generation was the 16570, which is my favorite. Then they went to the 42 millimeter, which I think was an important decision for the brand. It's, it makes the watch a little bit less appealing for my wrist, but it does easily differentiate the watch from sub Speedmasters, Daytonas, that sort of thing. So I, yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting watch with a, with kind of a fun backstory that because the backstory feels not contrived, but kind of so limited, it's for cavers that you almost don't have to take it as seriously as something that was had to be for diving or with a military background or the GMT master and its connection with, you know, pretty hardcore aviation and professional aviation and that sort of thing. This watch is like, it's fringe professional. So yeah, you got spelunkers, you got guys that lived in tents at the base of uh, Everest most of the year. Like you, you got kind of more fringe seventies personalities wearing this. Reinhold Mesner early in his days, you know, wore a 1655 and, and we saw him later with other versions of, of similar and Mesner wore a lot of Rolex long before his days now with Montblanc and on, you know, really legendary climbs. But, you know, yeah, it is kind of this counterculture Rolex in some way, at least the expansion of counterculture, this kind of connected into it in a fun way. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I want to know, you know, as you were researching this, like it's obvious that this is a watch you know well and that you've thought a lot about. When you were actually writing the story, was there any like weird bit of history that you didn't know that just kind of like blew you away or something about the watches themselves that you didn't know? Some of the minutiae, which we do cover in the post, the differences between a Mark One and a Mark II, Mark Three dial, there's different bezels, like all that kind of stuff makes sense. But it's funny how I think what resounded with me, and this maybe doesn't fully slot into as an answer for this specific question. But what came up in my mind while we're, while I was going over all the differences is, of course, you can really see where the idea of like scholarly Rolex understanding sits. And so when you get back to the 1655, people have written a lot about it and all the different versions. And there's little drawings of all the different, the coronet hole size and the alignment of two letters that tell you it's a Mark II. And of course, rail dials, that's easy to understand. 
But then as soon as you get to a 16550, there's way less. Like this this watch was in a in a zone where it wasn't old enough to be this special collectible thing necessarily. So people weren't writing scholarly information, reference data about it. Yeah. But then it's also not new enough to be part of the current popularity of watches. That's almost like like, you know, my Explorer 2 is made in 07. And it's probably about as old as an Explorer 2 could be where it becomes almost not interesting due to its history. I, I think they're interesting now. I think people care now. These watches have gone up in value the rest. But I think, you know, when you research watches, you really learn there's a glut of information for stuff up until about 1975, 19, like Quartz Crisis, 1977. And then there's a big hole where like watches were just a thing and, and, and people weren't really like necessarily keeping fantastic records at brands. You get you yeah. ping a brand about 1988 and ask them for information. They go, well, it was kind yeah. of a crazy time. <laughs> uh, and that's their way of saying like, we move the office and we don't still have that file folder. We, we move the office, laid off two thirds of our company and we're really worried that we were going to have to sell the machines for scrap. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We considered pivoting to making you know, aeronautical uh, measurement systems or, <laughs> right. or yeah, selling the whole thing to, uh, right. to somebody in West Germany. But yeah, it's it's it is kind of it is kind of like a, a weird thing. So there's this there's this hole of information from 16550s and even a lot of the early data for 16570s, you know, what, what the early dials might be compared to later ones, which ones have which loom, which ones have this marker that like the, so I mean it's it's fun to see that you can go back and write about a 1655 and and list five production dials, two service dials, yeah. four or five bezels depending on your position, four original bezels for certainly and then you get to the 16550 and, and people's paragraphs, there aren't drawings and photos and reference images. It's just, you know, a block of text that says, well, they came out on this date and, and they basically made it for four years. And then they made basically the same watch for the next 20 plus years and people didn't really care. Yeah. Well, people who are interested either in learning more, buying one, both, neither, should definitely check the story out. Uh, the magazine is out now, and uh, we'll have links in the show notes for people to go uh, check it out. Thanks for giving us this look inside the story, and uh, I really enjoyed reading it, and I, I think other people are going to uh, as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you like it. Definitely the story is going to cost you less than a watch, uh, so maybe start there and decide <laughs> decide later yeah. if, uh, if you want to go deeper. But uh, yeah, I, I hope people dig it, and, and I hope it fits into the greater scope of the magazine. I'm looking forward to seeing the other pages. Awesome. Thanks, James. Cool, man. Take care. Next, I sit down with Cole Pennington to talk about a new chapter in the history of space watches. Hey, Cole, how's it going? Steven, always a pleasure to uh, be talking to you. We're playing the uh, West Coast, Southeast Asia time zone game here, but uh, it's good to, good to see you as always. Likewise, not for much longer, and maybe maybe I'll be in the West Coast time zone too. Let's see. Hey, man, it's uh, the living's good out here. You're welcome any time. Today, we're, we're here to talk about space, which I feel like 50% of the time, if you and me are having a conversation, it's about something space related. True. But this is a good one. This is your piece for, for the magazine, Snuck Into Space, that I hope I'm not like overselling it here or overhyping you, but this is a piece that kind of rewrites the history of space watches, right? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Does it rewrite or does it add to it? I, I, I hate to say rewrites, but it adds a piece, a missing piece to the narrative about the first automatic chronograph in space. It's not to take away anything from all the, the scholarship and work that other people have done, but yeah, in a way it adds an important element to this 
ever evolving conversation. Okay, that's that's a good way to put it. I'll I'll I'll, I'll take that slight hedge here. Before we get into your story, the kind of received wisdom, the scholarship that's already been done that you're building off of here, like you said, you're not discarding it. You're building off of it. Is that the the Seiko Pogue was the first automatic chronograph in space? Right. That's that's the kind of story we all know. Right. That is. I mean, so in 2006 ish, a guy actually wrote to Colonel Polk, uh, just, just wrote him, you know, just literally wrote him a note and asked, Hey, what's the story with that watch? So that's actually on our site. There's a, there's a good, uh, we should link to it in the, the show notes, but that story has been told. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. we all know that that was the first automatic chronograph in space. And the big deal with an automatic chronograph in space for, for people who may not immediately understand why that distinction is important. And Cole, correct me if you disagree here, right? Is that they didn't know how an automatic watch would work in space. Like in zero gravity, would a winding rotor be sufficient or do you need a hand wound watch, right? Like that was a question that wasn't fully answered. Was it Cole? At this point? No, it, it wasn't. I mean, not, not officially. I mean, the, the common thing you read all the time on forums, this and the other thing is that it had to be the Speedmaster because it was hand wound and so forth. Well, that's not totally true. And as we'll see, there were some personal tests done to, to solve this problem too. So that is that that's what's at stake. Yeah. I like your I like your scare quotes for people <laughs> who can't see when you say personal, by which you mean like super against NASA policy and guys sneaking shit up into space, which I'll be honest, when when we first talked about this story, Cole, when you when you first brought this to us, which we'll we'll talk about in a second, my immediate reaction was like, we're talking about like early-ish space travel here. Like guys weren't sneaking shit up in these capsules. Like that can't be true, right? Like everything was so perfectly calculated and the weights mattered and like everything was so precise. Could these guys possibly be sneaking stuff up? And it turns out they did it all the time. Yeah, exactly. This, this actually isn't that weird. It, it really is all the time. Like the the famous, and you can Google this too, the, the corned beef sandwich that was snuck up by John Young. I oh, mean, man. that's... So, and, and we say sneaking. Another thing, too, is like that kind of implies like someone's really skirting the rules. It, well, also, NASA has had decades to sort of restrict the rules, right? R- rules were a little bit looser back then. Yeah. Well, I mean, keep in mind, we were like, like imagine the first voyages crossing the Atlantic Ocean. It was all looser because there was a lot ahead of us that we didn't know to regulate, right? So sneaking it up implies some like someone's doing some dirty work. Well, maybe not totally, you know, that's, that's fair. So let's get into the actual watch in question here. So basically the TLDR version of your story is that on the same mission where the Seiko Pogue went into space, there was actually another automatic chronograph in the same vessel, correct? That's right. And not only another automatic chronograph, but another one of the contenders for the first automatic chronograph period. So the watch was a Movado Datacron HS360. And inside of that watch is the El Primero movement, which, as you know, is also the contender for, in 69, the first automatic chronograph produced. So that watch actually went up on the ankle of Commander Gerald Carr. And he put it on his ankle during the suit-up phase. This was already out there, right? It's just discovering it. So in an oral history report, he even chronicled 
putting the watch on his ankle during suit up to bring it up to space. And this is an official NASA oral history, right? This isn't like something that like somebody found somewhere, right? No, no, no. This is the real deal. This was a project that NASA took on internally. And um, this came out in the early 2000s. So he spoke about this in the early 2000s. And it had been spotted online here and there, a mystery watch. Uh, but no one really knew enough. I mean, you know, NASA has tons and tons of archival images. So if something is up there, someone's going to catch a glimpse. But no one had put two and two together yet that this watch that he describes as a Movado in his oral history report is the mystery watch that was spotted in all these photographs, archival photographs. So it actually took him, sadly, passing away and then his daughter inheriting the watch and looking into it and doing more research for, for the story really to come to light. So that's how the story came to me. Uh, a fellow named Michael Haymond, who's the founder of a, a chrono group in Southern California, said, hey, I have a friend, and the friend here is Jessica Carr, whose father you know, left this watch to her, and she thinks it's the watch that went up to space with him. And you should look into this kind of thing. So got on the phone with Jessica Carr. And that's when the story started unfolding. Yeah, it's a pretty wild thing that this did kind of like sit under the radar for so long. Like you said, the information was all out there for the most part for at least the last, what, 10, 15 years. Yeah. And somehow it just kind of it just kind of sailed through like it didn't it didn't really like trigger any any alarm bells anywhere. And it's I don't know. For me, it's it's exciting as a as a journalist and as a person who who's deeply invested in in researching the history of this weird little little hobby we all have. Like, it's exciting to think that there are still like genuine bits of history to either be discovered or to be illuminated out there. That's exactly it. And the key takeaway for me was that, for better or worse, a lot of these things emerge when the original owner of the watch you know, leaves this earth. That's the only way for stories like this to be spotlighted. And for the record, you mean... Pass away. You're not talking about going into space, which is the other thing here too. Correct, correct. So that's the interesting thing. Like how many stories like this are out there and and are the breadcrumbs already out there all along and only in hindsight can we put these pieces together? And I think the answer is there's a lot and we'll see. I mean, we'll see as time goes on. But this story, this story is, yeah, incredibly unique. But I have a strange feeling that things like this, and as access to information becomes easier to manage, as watches become more mainstream, I think we'll see more and more stories like this. Yeah, I I agree. I think also we're seeing kind of the trajectory over the last, again, like 10, 20 years, the internet makes these stories easier to tell and, and easier to find. So I think we're going to continue to see some of these watches from the 60s, 70s, 80s that maybe like were a little bit lost. They're going to start to make their way back into the limelight. And as as they do, it's going to be much easier for the right people to connect. And in this case, like you said, it was like a friend of a friend happened to be the daughter of the guy who took the watch into space. And it's like, that kind of stuff can happen now and that person can find you and then we can tell this story. And like, that is super fascinating to me that this is still in some ways, like it's not quite a game of telephone, but it's, it's a game of like, Oh yeah, I have a friend who knows somebody. And like, it's like kind of old school gumshoe reporting in that way, but in a, in a digital way. I mean, I know you're, you're a pretty big space nerd. I consider myself a space nerd. You put me 
to shame probably two or three times over. Uh, you're you're kind of lapping me here. But uh, I, I wanted to know, as you put this story together, was there anything you discovered that kind of like surprised you? Anything that shocked you as you were putting this together? Uh, pretty interesting. It's in the story too, but there was a guy named Peter Lee who was hot on the trail and kind of had been putting the pieces together all along as well. So, you know, I was in, in close contact with him pinging ideas back and forth and uh, kind of sharing research and so forth. So it was just kind of, that surprised me to think that there was someone else hot on this trail already. And the other thing too, that, that really stuck out about him is that he's a, a surgeon by day and he was doing research, honest to goodness research in his spare time. So like, again, it illustrates or kind of underscores the, the notion that watches are so powerful that people are willing to just invest important time into these little passion projects. And in this case, a passion project that turned out to be a big deal. I mean, Cole, you do surgery in your spare time, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've all got to have hobbies, okay? Uh, yeah, all right. You know, the, the last thing I want to ask you about is this fills in, you know, one kind of like hole that we maybe didn't know existed in in the history of uh, watches and space travel. Is Is there another hole or another kind of like enigma that you're hoping to solve or or a piece of the puzzle that you'd like to find or help put together going forward? Something that's still out there kind of like tantalizing? Actually, so as I was going through and talking to more and more people, sort of the opposite happened. And it's not great, but I did come to a point where I kind of sat back and, you know, after doing all this research about even just about Skylab. So we should mention, yeah, it's, it's Skylab 4, by the way. But came to this point thinking, all right, myself and a few other people are obsessively tracking down the story about a watch that went to space. Then it hit me. Eventually, none of it will matter because space travel will become so ubiquitous and so commonplace that a watch that was flown in space won't have the gravitas, so to speak. A little bit of pun intended there. And it'll just be like how we take a watch on an airplane or whatever. So maybe like, yeah, again, to go back to the metaphor of discovering the new world, maybe the telescope that went on one of the first voyages to the new world was kind of worshipped. But now who cares, right? So the whole space watch thing, after thinking about it, it kind of left me, uh, you know, staring into a black hole, thinking at one point it won't be a big deal. That's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that at all. And I don't know, I kind of want to challenge you a little bit on it not mattering. I think like these are the things that went there first. You know, they they paved the way, they helped pioneer and and they really like helped, you know, not to be too dramatic about it, but like they helped human civilization move forward. Like they helped push us in a new direction. And I, I think those things will always be valuable. But I do kind of love the idea that it becomes unremarkable. Like I don't know, like the moment I can own a space flown watch, like, hell yeah, man, like sign me up, you know, not just own, maybe you take that watch with you on a suborbital yeah, flight. I mean, that's the other thing Yeah, that might happen in a lifetime. Yeah, exactly. And like, I really hope it does. But uh, yeah, you and me mission to Mars for Hodinkee. I mean, hey, if the commenters are right, Hodinkee just got a ton of money from a million different people. Why don't we take <laughs> some of that money? And funnel it into a fund that forwards Hodinkee's interest in space travel. I mean, other people are doing it. Why can't we get in I, on this? I love it, Cole. I love the enthusiasm. I was going to say, I think the skills you and I probably bring to a mission to Mars aren't like 
in the top couple hundred skills that they need. But like if they do, then sign me up. Like I'm on board all day. Never underestimate yourself, Stevie. <laughs> See, this is why, Cole, this is why we keep you around, my friend. This is this is the real deal right here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing this story, both in the magazine and and with us here. Again, I just really love this and and I'm super thrilled with how it turned out. And I think the the storytelling itself is great. Like you know, the nuts and bolts of the story are really fascinating, but I think the way it came out in the magazine is really great. The illustrations are beautiful, some really cool photos. So, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend, I mean, anyone listening who enjoyed this conversation, like definitely go check it out. It's uh, you're, you're not going to be disappointed. Yeah. I, I hope everyone that helped bring the story to light and everyone who reads the story is satisfied with it. And, and it was an honor to tell the story. That's the other thing too, that, that I guess I should add here. Like, to be able to tell these things is an honor because these people put their life on the line for the advancement of humankind and so forth. And that's, it's a bit of a responsibility to undertake the storytelling aspect, yeah. however small that might be, right? Like you said, it might be a hundred rolls down the line, but it's something. So yeah, that, that to kind of end the conversation, I think that's an important point to drive home. So yeah, I, I hope everyone reads it and enjoys it. Love that, Cole. Awesome. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. And uh, talk to you soon. Alrighty. See you, Steve. And now, my conversation with Genevieve Walker about gadget watches and watches as technology. Hey, Genevieve, how are you? Hi, doing well. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. We're, uh, we're here to talk all things gadget watches. It's your feature in the new magazine. Uh, it's called Go Go Gadget Watches, and it's all about the kind of techier side of wristwear, but not just today, kind of over the last, what, like 100 years or so? Yeah, something like that. First of all, let's let's just define gadget watches. Like what is a gadget watch as far as you and your your story are concerned? Well, you know, that's kind of part of the thesis of the piece, really. Gadget watches aren't exactly what I would have thought to describe them as going into this. You could call a watch that's on the wrist a gadget watch, considering our timeline, or you could call a gadget watch something with a buzzsaw from a Bond movie. So, you know, it's like kind of anything you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think in an interesting way, especially, you know, you mentioned a timeline, right? And and running through the story, you know, you kind of highlight the story is structured as a timeline and you highlight certain moments on the timeline more in depth than others. But the the first two kind of pings on the timeline are Breitling releasing a chronograph with a pusher where the crown is not the pusher and that's 1915. And then 1926, the arrival of the automatic wristwatch. And I, I, I think that's really interesting because it underscores the idea that like on a certain level, all watches are gadget watches or at least were in their time. Totally. And that I think is the point of this timeline to show that the normal functions of a watch or what we think of as normal functions could be considered cool gadgety features if you put it in this sort of perspective where watches didn't really have anything. But also, I mean, that we're just talking about the normal progression or evolution of the technology there. But if you put that against, you know, the idea of a gadget watch, that is a gadget and it's super cool, especially because it, 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 watches didn't have those things before. So yeah, those are definitely gadget features. Yeah. And and there's also, I, I love in this timeline, there's a mix of, of kind of real things and fantastical things. So we've got, you know, 
the TV watch sitting right alongside James Bond's watch, or we have the Apple watch, you know, sitting not too far from Dick Tracy's two-way communicator watch. And it's it's interesting to see the interplay of sort of dreaming and ideas about what a watch can be on the one hand in the sort of fantasy realm. And then on the other hand, you have these kinds of innovations eventually making their way into like actual consumer products that people can go buy. Yeah. And I loved that. I kind of came across that as I was researching. I mean, it seems really obvious that the fiction would inspire reality when you look at it in a timeline like this, where these things are sitting next to one another on this timeline. You know, it's just kind of wild to see what brought what into the world. So, you know, you have Dick Tracy's original two-way radio watch, and then you have this sort of weird real version that almost comes to market, but it's just missing some certain miniaturized pieces that would have been necessary to make it real. But that watch being created, this like this real version of a Dick Tracy watch, pushed other technology forward, like, you know, the miniaturization of other pieces needed to go into. It was just a lot of technology being developed for wartime. But, you know, what's to say that Dick Tracy didn't have a huge impact on a lot of the gadgets that we have now because people were trying to feed a hungry consumer market that wanted this thing that seemed so cool and so almost possible and yet wasn't. Yeah, I think that's that's really fascinating. And I, I, I think you touched on there another thing I, I love about this, which is that it shows the weird ways in which like historical events impact watches and then watches kind of impact historical events or pop culture or whatever. And the way that it's really a two-way conversation, I mean, the the stuff in like 2001, A Space Odyssey comes to mind where like Hamilton created special watches and clocks just for the movie. And then those kinds of things ended up becoming extremely popular just a few years later. And it's, you get to see the way in which sort of like culture and consumerism kind of like play off of one another in a really direct and compelling way. Right. Yeah. And a part of that, I think, too, is just a hunger for design. Yeah. Uh, We see something cool and we're like, well, I want that. I don't really care how it works. (laughs) Like the 2001 stuff, you know, that was competing with real world watches, real life watches that were more complex than what was going on there in the fictional realm, but the fictional realm looked more futuristic than reality. And so that too was a really powerful driver, I think, of this whole timeline. It's like, yeah, we like cool looking things like the sneakers and Back to the Future and the double watch wearing on the wrist of Doc Brown. Yeah, no, I, I love that. You know, some some of the stuff on this timeline is is stuff I think a lot of people will know about. I mean, like there are references to Knight Rider and Inspector Gadget and like those things, James Bond. I think those things are things people expected. But was there anything you discovered in researching this story that kind of like shocked you or surprised you? I can't say that anything popped out of the woodwork that I was surprised to find. I was actually surprised by how few watches there were in popular fiction. But I think what surprised me the most was that Inspector Gadget was such a big player. Penny, the niece, who is Inspector Gadget's assistant, has everything and has these versions of things, meaning gadgets um, and devices that maybe most closely resemble what we have now like this almost 
Apple Watch that she wears and a tablet that she can open and communicate, like look things up on and scan rooms. Uh, something I, I don't think we can leave out is there's two things. Uh, I would say like Swatch and G-Shock are kind of like two players where when they came out, like they were definitely gadget watches. And I think now they've just become like part of the vernacular of watches. And I, I wonder how you would maybe position the kind of like impact of those two things kind of both coming about in the 80s. Well, I feel like uh, I, I want to group it with the fashion, like the fashion watch sort of like takeover of the market. I guess what I kind of talked about before, but in a different context, it's like the gadget becomes the look for Squatch primarily. I do think that that is an instance where one can pinpoint maybe the fictional overwhelming reality yeah. <laughs> in terms of what's influencing what, because in these movies, we have all these watches at, around that time that kind of don't do much more than what the real versions do. So I think that Swatch especially is is key there. So the market starts to, I think, catch up with the human body in a way, because like, what more do you really want on a wrist? It's like we all kind of came to a halt and we're like, wait, wait, wait. Actually, I just want something that looks pretty cool on my wrist. And then the other, you know, gadgets and functions, whatever, those can, you know, I can have a good TV. I can have like a tablet eventually, but on my wrist. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually kind of a perfect segue to to the last thing on this timeline, right? Which is is the Apple Watch. And we we position it as, or you position it as, as the Apple Watch and beyond. And, you know, having covered the Apple Watch since the day it was announced in Cupertino, like there's a way in which the Apple Watch like almost feels like the end game, right? Like it's it's a strap and a screen and it does kind of whatever, and it has sensors on the back, but they're all hidden. It's very monolithic in a way, while also providing kind of like infinite flexibility. And and I wonder, you know, we, we've covered the Apple Watch on the site a million times. People can go read all about it. But like, I'm curious about that beyond. Like, where do you think gadget watches go now that we have a watch that is kind of like a, a blank slate to be any gadget? You know, I think we just start carrying pocket watches again, potentially. <laughs> Jack will love to hear that. You, you've just made Jack very, very happy. Um, but no, I, you know, I don't think we really want much more from the watch than what the Apple watch and other smart watches can provide because there's a point and, you know, that this, this isn't on the timeline, but there's a point at which gadgets stop becoming smaller and start getting bigger. It's a functional issue. <laughs> You know, we don't want to watch television on our wrist when we can watch it on enormous screens in our houses. <laughs> or we can look at, you know, our iPad even. Mm, yeah. So I do think the smartwatches we have now, you know, if you were to let me let my imagination run wild, I could tell you what I want on my watch, but it wouldn't be the functional things that gadget watches, fictional and real, have provided. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, this has been great. The story's incredible. It's the writing is really smart. The illustrations are unbelievable. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this, like definitely pick up a copy of the magazine. The illo for this is is really cool and I think does a great job kind of putting these things in in dialogue with one another. So thank you for the story. Thank you for chatting. And uh, ho hopefully we'll have you back on here soon. Well, thank you so much. It was awesome to work on this story. And yeah, the illustrations are incredible. Amazing. Thanks so much. 